Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Previously on The Score, behind the headlines. Let me explain what the motion for reconsideration included. That included my interview of Larry Demery on December 31st of 2018, where he told me that what he testified to was not true, that he was, he was given the facts to testify to that would, that would shore up the conviction. Welcome to The Score Behind the Headlines, Episode 8. I am Daniel Green. Behind the Headlines is an investigative podcast from 670 The Score. In Season 1, we're examining the 1993 murder of Michael Jordan's father, James Jordan. I'm executive producer Tony Gill with Julie DeCaro. Julie, are you there now? I am. Daniel? Uh, hello. Hi, Daniel. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. It's really nice to talk to you. I'm glad that you were able to do this. Um, yeah, you too. Thank you. And uh, and I've been keeping up with, uh, you know, what you guys have been doing. I uh, appreciate uh, your uh, objectivity. Last week, we were lucky enough to get a chance to talk to Chris Muma, the attorney representing Daniel Green. In case you haven't been following along, Daniel Green and his childhood friend Larry Demery have been in prison for the murder of Michael Jordan's father, James Jordan, since 1996. But in recent years, there have been a lot of questions raised about the reliability of the evidence used to convict the two men, and especially the evidence against Daniel Green. Remember, in deciding that Daniel was the one who actually shot James Jordan, the prosecution relied entirely on the testimony of Larry Demery. In exchange for Larry testifying against Green, the prosecution agreed not to seek the death penalty. Last week, Daniel Green's attorney, Chris Muma, dropped a bombshell on us. She visited Larry Demery in prison on December 31st of 2018, and Demery now claims his testimony against Daniel Green was not only false, but that it was fed to him by the prosecution. Larry Demery now claims that he lied on the stand, that he never saw Daniel Green shoot James Jordan. But despite this new and earth-shattering evidence, Daniel Green's motion for an evidentiary hearing, a major step towards winning a new trial, was denied by a judge back in March. Well, after five months of research, investigation, and waiting, we finally got the chance to sit down with Daniel Green this week. His attorney, Chris Muma, was also on the phone with us, as was a caseworker from the prison. Once about 10 minutes into the call, we got cut off, and we were afraid the Lumberton Correctional Facility would deny Daniel the chance to call back. After all, 
he was only promised one phone call to us. And the phone kept clicking during our interview, making Daniel wonder in on if anybody was listening. We started off by asking Daniel Green what he wanted people listening to this podcast to know. And it turns out, there's quite a bit. Starting with the prosecution's claims that he was the mastermind behind a string of robberies that eventually led to James Jordan's death. That summer of 1993, I had just came back uh, to Robeson County. Robeson County, that's what we say around here is Robeson. I had did two and a half years in prison uh, for a conviction that was later overturned. During that summer, I was still, you know, I was still an ex-convict due to this conviction. Um, there's this misperception that I'm familiar with Robinson County, which I'm not. My family is from, is from the country. That's what we call it, the country. So my grandmother, my great-grandmother, the person who predominantly raised me with my mother, but predominantly was my grandmother, uh, she lived on a dirt road in an isolated area where everybody is pretty much family. Um, so basically, a lot of different things that was going on, I think a knowledge that was attributed to me uh, it's not true because people assume that or they believe that I'm from this area and I should know a lot of different things like there was a, a store, a guy named Clues Demery that was robbed. I have no idea where that store is at to this day. Mm-hmm. I have no idea where that store is at. Um, I, I don't know Hubert Larry Dees, uh, some of the other people that's been mentioned. I've never talked to this man that I know of. I was just, um, I was 18 years old. I had just came back to this area. We When I came to this area, my mother had a trailer outside of Lumberton, and um, about a month after my release, you know, or maybe a couple of weeks after my release, Larry and I kind of reconnected. Remember, Daniel and Larry are childhood friends, going back to elementary school. We asked Daniel about their relationship and how they met. And the thing about Larry is that when I was in prison, Larry was the only guy they contacted me while I was in prison. And I was going to a black school down here that was uh, mostly black. It wasn't all black, but it was mostly black. There was a case that forcefully integrated schools here in North Carolina. Due to that, our school, which was the black school, it was shut down and we was bused to a, to a school that was predominantly Lumbee and white. Okay, Lumbee is a, is a, is a, is, is, is a tribe of American Indians. And that's what Larry is. He's and he's Lumbee and he's white. And we were not wanted at that school. And it was like ten of us. So it was maybe ten of us and maybe two hundred of them, two or three hundred, four hundred. I don't know how many people was in the school. But um, that's how he and I became friends in third grade. We were fighting, uh, you know, not a real fight, but arguing, fighting about something. And my teacher, a lady named Miss Lynette, uh, she forced us to make up, and she put us in a book club together. Because uh, both of us were, you know, really like reading. And so that's how Larry and I became friends. I, I didn't, because I stuttered, I think I felt maybe, and I still do at times, I think I felt more self-conscious and uncomfortable about my environment than maybe I should have. Because I never you know, had any problems with my classmates. Like everybody, I was okay and, and friends with everybody. For whatever reason, Larry was kind of like a loner. Uh, and so I was the one that kind of, like, you know, as friends, like, say, for instance, if a girl liked him, I would be the person going back and forth passing notes. But I'm the one that's always been talkative, very talkative, whereas he's the one that's just not at all. He's very uh, quiet to other people unless he really knows you. Two years before the James Jordan murder, 
Daniel Green had been sent to prison for hitting another man in the head with the handle of an axe. Actually, we say man, but they were just boys. Daniel was 15 at the time, and that case was eventually overturned, and Daniel was found to have acted in self-defense. So here he is, 15 years old, in prison, terrified, and Larry Demery was the only friend who made an effort to stay in touch. Well, Larry and I reconnected. Like I said, he was the, the only person that really wrote me that there was a guy when I was in prison, and that means a lot when you're in prison because you're in a place, you're in a, an isolated area, you don't know anybody. For me, it was even worse because I didn't have, like most people in prison, have homeboys from the same area that they're from. I didn't know anybody in prison. So uh, he was the only person that, you know, every now and then he would write me or I could call him every now and then. Um, he was the only one except for my mother and a couple other people. But when Daniel eventually won his release from prison two years later, he found out that Larry Demery was a different person than he knew before he went in. He and I reconnected that summer. Um, he had just, I don't know what was go- exactly what was going on, but basically he was involved in, uh, in trafficking cocaine. Mostly cocaine. I think it involved weed as well, but mostly it was cocaine is what he was talking about to me. And you got to understand, this is 1993 when everybody that was our age, most guys wanted to be involved in the cocaine trade, right? Like you wanted to be connected to people uh, that was in that because that was the, really the only people that had anything. The jobs down here were scarce. Then, um, maybe not as scarce, maybe not as scarce now as they are, but back then it was pretty much either you was working in a factory or you was working for the state in some capacity. Before Daniel gets to this next part, remember that Larry Demery and Larry Deese the drug-dealing son of Sheriff Hubert Stone, both worked at Crestline Mobile Homes, just a mile down the road from where the body of James Jordan was discovered in South Carolina. So when I, you know, when I reconnected with him and he pretty much let me know gradually what was going on is that he had a job working for a guy that was his girlfriend's father. And he would drive a, a car in front of, like, a Say, for instance, if you have a trailer, they have to put the trailer together. So they may have, like, one half on a truck, and they have, like, the other half on another truck behind it. He would drive a car that had wide load on the top of the roof, and he would basically, uh, I guess that would, that would be to let people know that there's, a, that there's a wide load coming behind him. Okay? Yeah. Um, supposedly, and this is what he's telling me, I don't know anything, like, I don't know a lot of this stuff from, from first-hand knowledge. But basically what he was telling me is that they had had some problems where the people that owned these different trailer factories, it had been discovered that they were using the actual trailers themselves to transport drugs uh, within the, the air conditioning, the heating, you know, air ducts within, within the homes themselves and within the walls. Some lady maybe was putting up a picture or something and, and like the wall just kind of fell down and co- a whole bunch of keys of cocaine fell out. Wow. So what they started doing then is that they started having the person that was in, in, in the vehicle, they would have them transported, and they, I guess, never really got bothered. Uh, so that's what he had got involved in. He started using, um, using the drugs and was taking what, to me, he described to me as being, you know, very, like, a small amount that he was, you know, for his own use or maybe selling it on the side. Uh, when they found out, instead of just, you know, I guess they could have killed him or whatever, but I think, you know, it was just a little bit too close connection with his family. They kind of put him on, like, you know, like he, like on standby for anything that needed to be done. Like, if they needed him to make a trip, he would have to make the trip, and they may give him money, 
like, you know, gas money, food money, but that's pretty much it until he paid the money back. So he owed a certain amount of money. Because Larry Demery had been there for Daniel while Daniel was in prison, Daniel tried to be there for Larry, even trying to help him pay off the drug dealers to whom Daniel says Larry Demery owed money. Where I came in is at the time I was working at a place that is a, um, it's like a rest home. Um, and so when I got my check, I like gave him, gave him almost half my money. I paid the person I had to pay for the state for the, um, cause I was on parole. So I had to pay the money for that. And, um, and you know, of course then gave money to my mother or whatever. And so, uh, but it was like, every time he gave these people money, it's like, well, no, you, you still owe us or you didn't pay as much as you're supposed to pay this week. So we're going to put interest on it, which would make it grow or just never to me. I was just telling him, like, listen, man, these people are playing games with you, and, and that's something that you like. You need to handle that. According to Daniel, all this led up to the night that James Jordan was murdered, allegedly on the side of the road in Robeson County. Well, on the night that this happened, he was supposed to be going out to the Quality Inn to uh, pick up a car that was supposed to have dope, cocaine, stashed inside of the car, inside of the interior of the vehicle itself, whether... Maybe, I don't know, like inside, under the trunk or in the wheels or however they, they stashed inside of the vehicle. Remember, the Quality Inn was located less than half a mile from where the prosecution says James Jordan was shot while sleeping in his car on the side of the road. I do know that he had been to that hotel before to retrieve cocaine out of the soda machines. Like they would have like a Coca-Cola machine. He was like, okay, I'm going to get some Coke. I'm going to get, no, I'm going to get some Coca-Cola. But really what he would do is he would take a key, go into the Coca-Cola machine, open it up, and there would be drugs in there. He would pick it up and do whatever it is that he, that he was supposed to do with it. So on that night when he left, I was supposed to go with him. He was supposed to be going up to New York, to Huntington Park, New York. Uh, and he was going to take this car up there and drop it off. Now, understand that... This is that, that there was a phone call that he made to his cousin, I guess to set it up to let his cousin or somebody know that he was coming. This was before Mr. Jordan was murdered, maybe three or four or five hours, whatever time, exact time he was murdered. So once we, um, you know, once we made that type of decision to go ahead and go up there together, um, we had we went to my godmother's house. Like so we went from his house where he called his, his cousins at. And we went to my godmother's house. But when it was time for Daniel and Larry to leave for the trip to deliver a package to New York, Daniel decided he didn't want to go. So we were supposed to be you no, know, we were supposed to be leaving together. And me and it was this girl there named Bobby Joe. So at the time that he was ready to go, Bobby Joe and I we was kissing. Uh, it was late. Maybe about, you know, sometime after 12, 12, between 12 and 1, 1.30, whatever what time it was. And so he was like, yo, man, let's go. And I was like, okay, hold on for a second. I'll be with you. And, you know, you're kissing somebody. And maybe because I had been, like, in prison for two and a half years or, you know, the chemistry, whatever it was, it's like time just flew real fast. It was just like I, like we was kissing literally for about maybe like an hour, hour and a half. And he just got upset and just finally went ahead and left. The thing is, I didn't really want to go anyway because I didn't want to get on the interstate, you know, going through all these different, uh, you know, checkpoints or whatever could possibly be out there. Uh, but I was going because I wanted to be with him because, you know, he felt kind of unsafe. So he went ahead and left. And when he came back, you know, I was asleep. And I can't tell you the exact time, uh, but it was probably somewhere after 4 o'clock, uh, 4 o'clock in the morning. And when he came back, uh, somebody woke me up. I don't know if if the, if you know if the talking woke me up because I was sleeping in the same area that we was at that whole night, which is like a den area. 
So when he came back, my mom was like, look, uh, Daniel, you know, and Larry, she was talking, because she talked to Larry, treated Larry just like a son as well. Like, Larry, you, you know, you can't be coming in this late at night. People have to get up and go to work, and, like, real soon and making noise. So either come in and lay down and go to sleep, or y'all go ahead and leave. We thought, what y'all going to do? So I went outside, and I talked to him, and we sat uh, on a, um, it's like, Kay had a, it's a um, you know, like one of those wooden gazebos. So we sat out there, you know, he smoked a cigarette, he just, was kind of telling me, like, listen, I just need you to go with me. And I got in the car with him, and he started telling me what happened. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. And it's at this point that Daniel has said in other interviews he felt like he was in a choose-your-own-adventure book, only he made the exact wrong decision with no chance to go back and choose a different path. Now, here's the thing. I really didn't believe him. I thought that he was just trying to say anything to get me to go with him. He was supposed to have been going, like, when he left, it was another person that was supposed to have been going with us. And he told me that the other person, that he went to go pick him up, and he couldn't find him. You know, this was before cell phones and, and everything. So basically, if you had a person's phone number, home number, and they don't answer, you're not going to track them down. Daniel says he thought Larry was joking or making an excuse to try to get Daniel to leave the house with him. So he gets in the car and heads over to the Quality Inn with Larry Demery. When we get there, you know, after this is, he's on, basically he told me that he shot this guy and it was a situation of self-defense. And, you know, once we got there and then I saw that there was a body there, then I believed him. The body was, you know, laying outside, you know, in a kind of like, you know, in a grassy type of area. I was like, listen, man, let's just go. You know, let's just, you know, let's just leave this. Let's just go. Because he was planning on leaving, like, anyway, going to Michigan. Uh, and I was like, man, like, I think you should just leave. He's like, nah, man, I can't even leave this here. Because if I leave this, this, you know, this body here, they're going to come after me. Daniel says the body was never on the side of the highway, like the prosecution claims, but was in an area near the hotel. Well, I don't know anything about the side of a road. That's something that I don't know where that came from. I don't know if that came from Larry. I don't know if it came from them. Um, but where we picked up the body was near the very close to the hotel. At this point, Daniel and Larry have no idea the body they're looking at belongs to the father of the most famous man in the world. Larry told Daniel that this man, he thought, was the connection he was supposed to meet in order to run a load of cocaine up to New York. I mean, I thought that the other person was a mule. I mean, if you're going to, so for those who may not know, uh, if you're transporting, first of all, if you're transporting drugs in a car, usually it's not your car, right? You don't use your car. You have a title to it that you're leasing. What you will do is you will either get a car that's been, that's been stolen, that's been wiped clean, kind of, you know, that's clean, or you'll get like a uh, car that is some type of rental vehicle. So you get something that can't be traced back to you. And the thing is, the ideal is that, okay, you know, like if you ever get stopped in the car, you just bail out, you run. You know, you leave the car and you don't have to worry about it um, or whatever. So um, pretty much that was, you know, pretty much that was it. 
So according to Daniel, he and Larry thought James Jordan was a guy Larry was supposed to meet to hand over the car he was going to drive to New York. Of course, Larry had no idea what this person was supposed to look like. It won't be until days later that they realize he was Michael Jordan's father. Then we asked Daniel a question many of our listeners told us they wanted an answer to. Did Daniel Green know Larry Deese? Now remember, Larry Deese was the son of Sheriff Hubert Stone. Stone was accused multiple times of providing protection for local drug dealers in exchange for kickbacks. And Larry Deese was later arrested for dealing cocaine by the feds. So why was Larry Deese the first phone call Larry and Daniel made from the cell phone in James Jordan's car? Daniel Green, did you know Larry Deese? The only thing I knew was that he was involved with the sheriff's son, who was who he, according to him, he was protected. He had protection. And as evidence of his protection, I, I knew that he had a warrant out for his arrest, but I, I, I didn't know what it was. And by he, Daniel's talking about Larry Demery. Come to find out, he had a warrant out for his arrest for an assault and a robbery of a lady um, in Pembroke. So and I didn't, like I said, I, I, I didn't know that. I didn't have no idea. So being that he had a warrant out for his arrest, his thing was like, yo, I'm protected. I, you know, like, I don't even have to go to court. So in case it's unclear, what Daniel was saying here is that Larry Demery told him he was protected by the sheriff's son. And as proof of his protection, Larry told Daniel that even though he had a warrant out for his arrest, he didn't worry about being picked up by the Robinson County Sheriff. It was at this point Daniel's attorney, Chris Muma, jumped in to elaborate on what we talked about in the last episode. Despite the prosecution's claims that Daniel was a violent criminal, it was actually Larry Demery who had the history of violence. So, Julie, this is one that we actually did not talk about in the last episode. This was another act of violence by Demery. He um, robbed a woman and hit her in the head with a cinder block. Um, and so I had actually forgotten about that, in the specifics of that incident. But yeah, but he put a gun, basically they robbed her, put a gun, if they had her, they robbed and put a gun on her, so nobody doesn't really understand, like, why, after you done robbed this lady with a gun outside of a store, why would you even hit her in the head with a, with a cinder block? That's what didn't make sense. And he never told me that, so I didn't find that out until after I was locked up with the actual charge but this, was. This goes back to the statements that are made that Demery was not the one with right. the prior, prior violent history. Okay, Daniel, go ahead. Okay, so um, so so back to Larry D. So uh, she said the sheriff's son. Now the sheriff has a son that I knew was that I heard rumors was the sheriff's son, a guy that owned a store, um, and I kind of thought it was that one. Uh, he he would say, well, you know, Hubert Larry. Uh, he wouldn't say Larry. He would say Hubert Larry. Uh, but that's why I just thought it was mixed up with the other guy. Because I, like, I don't know these people. These people don't know me. But it was common knowledge, you know, that, that they pretty much owned and controlled the whole flow of drugs in this county. And through this county, like, they saying you had to pay tax or whatever. So when it comes to Hubert Larry D's, the only thing I knew at that time was that Larry owed, you know, it was him or the organization that he was with a lot of money, that he was scared. We asked Daniel if he had any idea why Larry Demery tried to call Hubert Larry Deese while trying to dispose of James Jordan's body. And while Daniel could only speculate, here's what he said. Uh, I think he probably just called him to let him know. Um, I would. I mean, well, I know what he was telling me. He said he was, you know, calling, I guess, to try to figure out, okay, like, what should I do now? Because one, one of the other people that was supposed to go was not in place. 
uh, and maybe he was going to call and tell him what happened. Maybe he trusted him enough to say, okay, this is what happened, and what do you want me to do? Um, but gotcha. exactly what the conversation would have been, I don't know. Dane went on to tell us that he took Larry Demery's story about the shooting at face value for a while. But in the following days, he started to question Larry's version of events. From the time that we obtained the car, maybe like a week and a half later, you know, I was under pressure. One thing, which is what he told me happened, is what had happened. Okay, uh, but I'm the type of person that I don't like. If I feel uneasy about something, or I'm just kind of just inquisitive anyway. Like, I ask a lot of questions. And so with Larry, some of the things that he said didn't add up. You know, and I kept kind of figuring out, because I, I, could, I could tell he wasn't telling me everything, or he wasn't truthful about something. Now, when this happened, understand this, when I made a decision to help him cover up this murder, that wasn't a, a thought-out, deliberated decision. That was, you know, we're right here on the spot, and I don't know what in the hell to do. I don't know about the future consequences. I'm not thinking it out. I'm just reacting to the situation. And he said, yo, look, man, I like when to move the body. Okay, let's go. I had no idea that he was going to move the body. Like, basically, almost, people don't, may not realize this, maybe 30 miles. I don't know exactly how far away it is from Lumberton, but it has to be at least about 30, 35 miles. So I'm thinking, like, maybe a mile or so down the road. But remember this. James Jordan's body was actually dumped in gum swamp. That's about 30 or so miles from the Quality Inn, where Daniel says he saw the body for the first time. But it was only just a mile down the road from Crestline Mobile Homes, where both Larry Demery and Larry Deese worked. And both Daniel and his attorney say that Crestline was involved in moving cocaine through the region. Well, it was actually like about a mile away from where Larry, Larry and Hugh, Larry Dees, and the host, and, and they all worked. And I've wondered since then, like, why would he even want to go there? So I don't know if maybe if he was trying to throw it back on Hugh, Larry Dees, because he felt like there was pressure on him, and he was trying to get him out of the way. I don't know what he's thinking. Probably. I don't have no idea why he wanted to go there, but he knew exactly where he wanted to go, and we went straight there. I've read recently that the state was trying to say that it was hours, that, like, that there was hours between the time that he was killed and the time that the body was disposed. But from the time that he came and picked me up to the time that, you know, we moved this man's body was, was like maybe 15 minutes. And 30, 40 minutes, 50 minutes later, we were in where I thought was outside of Lawrenburg, come to find out we was in South Carolina. And, and it was just starting to get light. It wasn't even like the sun was rising, but it was just getting, it was just like enough light for you to, for you to start seeing. You know, like Dawn. So, yeah, I don't, like I said, I don't know, um, kind of, I don't, I have no idea what he was thinking about or why he wanted it, but I was just, I was just there. And I wasn't thinking, I was just, okay, let's, yo, let, you know, let's go, let's go. And I'm trying to be calm. I'm trying to be, you know, like be strong and, you know, supportive and, you know, like a, like a 18 year old trying to be like a man, something that you really not at that age. Daniel also really took exception to the narrative that the rap video in which he was seen performing for the camera wearing James Jordan's jewelry was a callous display of him bragging about James Jordan's murder. The jury wasn't allowed to see the video at trial because the judge ruled it was too prejudicial to Daniel Green's case, but it was shown far and wide by the local and national media. I would like to clear up two things, and this is not just speaking to them, but also speaking you know, to, to uh, James Jordan's family and friends. One is that when this when this case happened, um, you know, there was a video of me rapping. Um, 
And it was said, and a lot of people still believe to this day, that I was rapping about killing James Jordan. I rap every day, you know what I'm saying, since I was like 13 years old, maybe. Like, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to rap. But the thing is that I didn't make a video. I, it's not like I said, okay, look, I have this jewelry. Let me make a, a video to show off this jewelry. Let me make a video to rap about killing James Jordan. And that's, that's not even logical because if you listen to it, it's called battle rapping. So what I, was, what I actually said, I said, this is something... That I said, uh, I, I, what I said, I said, this is something I can't under, I can't, cannot, can't understand how you could just kill a man, but my finger on the trigger make you think again. And then I said something about two shots, busting two shots to the head, which, in the context of the type of music that I was doing in the summer of 1993, was was probably like, you know, it, you know it's like a metaphor. It's not literally, literally talking about shooting a person. Two shots is is like you're busting on somebody, like you're. Uh, putting somebody down, which is what rap is about. I'm better than you, and I'm, be you know, what I'm saying so, and I'm taking you out. That's what rap is about, you know, and on any level. Daniel went on to tell us that he felt the prosecution allowed the video to get out to the public to taint the jury pool, to play on the perception of young black men as thugs, gangsters, and gang members. Today, it's something that wouldn't even raise any type of eyebrows because of, you know, uh, YouTube and all these other things. But back then, it was something that they could use. And what they did is that, to me, is that they used this overall uh, fear and this perception of black people that rap as thugs, which equals killers. And then I had, a, then I had this White Sox hat on, which at the time I did, didn't even know was, like, gang-associated. Come to find out, they say, okay, that if you wear your hat a certain way, that's, that's a symbol of you being a gang. I was never in a gang. You know, I just had a hat on. He also wanted people to know that he and other people who saw James Jordan's jewelry never believed it was real. They just thought it was cool because it had Michael Jordan on it. Like, nobody thought it was, like, a real Michael Jordan ring. We didn't even think, nobody, I mean, that's beyond even thinking about it. She's sitting there with something that actually belonged to Michael Jordan. But because it has Michael Jordan's name on it, that automatically makes it cool. Like, that makes it something that you would, that you would want to wear. And even during my trial, when they entered... Um, it was a ring, the all-star ring, when they entered it into evidence and they passed it around to the jury, they put it on. Like, members of the jury tried it on. So, you know, like anybody else, I'm a fan of Michael Jordan. The very first pair of sneakers I ever bought in my life, they were Jordans that I bought with my money that I worked all summer to get. So, um, you know, that's one thing I would want to, that I would definitely want to correct because that had nothing to do with anything about this murder. It had definitely wasn't bragging. It's just that the only value to me that that should have had to the state was to say, okay, this guy has this watch and this ring on. So Daniel's point in all of this is that the video had nothing to do with the murder. He didn't make the video to brag about murdering anyone. Rap videos were something he says he made all the time. And he put on Jordan's jewelry because he thought it looked cool. He never dreamed it actually belonged to a member of Michael Jordan's family. And Daniel says the prosecution deliberately released the video to try and sway public opinion in their favor. National media picked up, like instead of doing their own work, right? They just picked up what the, what the, what the uh, local newspapers were putting up. And one thing that was told to me, you know, and I was in the county jail at, at the time, is that uh, on the, over the phone is that one of the writers for the Robert Sonia blatantly told me, he said, listen, man, Hubert Stone controls what is printed by this newspaper. When it comes to crime, he tells people what to hear, what to print, and they print it. 
They also took exception to pictures of him leaving the courthouse smiling as evidence of his supposed disregard for human life. When I would come out of the courthouse, there's an area that is behind this courthouse, and Chris is probably, you know, she can confirm what I'm saying. And so when I would come out, my family and my friends, they would be out there standing, like that's where they would stand at. And when I would look at, you know, of course I would look at and see, I'm smiling at my family because I just came out of a courthouse, you know, going through something that's crazy as hell, then I'm scared as hell. Uh, I'm angry as hell, like the whole experience is a bad experience, right, as you know, anybody could imagine. And my, I see my family, I, I'm smiling, because I'm still, I'm still the man of my family. You understand what I'm saying? I'm still trying to keep my family strong, so I'm not going to come out of the courthouse crying, and then my mother seeing me crying, or my sister seeing me crying. They have to go home and carry that burden. I, when I come out, I smile at them. I'm not smiling at the cameras. I'm not smirking. I'm not making light of the situation. It's an automatic thing. And so I've never taken this situation for light. You know, I've never um, minimalized it in any type of way. And for those who still cling to conspiracy theories about James Jordan's murder being tied to Michael's gambling debts, Daniel wants you to know it's not true. The only reason that anybody even knows what I actually did is because when I was arrested and I realized what was being said in the media saying that James Jordan was killed because Michael Jordan had gambling debts and it was the mob. That, you know, saying that's one of the reasons that I decided, matter of fact, that's the only reason I decided to say, okay, no, let me tell you this is what happened because I, I was trying to disabuse people of that notion because to me, you know, I am a, I'm, you know, proudly black person. And so to me, it was like, okay, they're trying to use this as a way of attacking Michael Jordan, who is a, who is a successful person. I now have to straighten the record on this. Uh, that's not what happened. Let me tell you everything that I know and what I was told. So um, that, that's something else I would just want to straighten out. So if everything Daniel was saying is true, there came a time when he realized that his childhood friend, Larry Demery, was blaming him for the murder of James Jordan, a murder Daniel says he wasn't even present for. So do the two men still keep in touch? How does Daniel Green feel about Larry Demery today? I have not seen Larry since he testified against me, and I think I feel, you know, and I'll be honest with you, it, it, it's, this is the thing, right? So in prison, you know, uh, you can, there's different types of people in prison, and people who use prison for different ways. And so I'm one of those people that, like, I haven't, you know, like, embraced the prison lifestyle, right? I don't gamble, I don't play cards. Uh, I spend a lot of my time reading, studying, uh, and it's uh, um, me trying to make sense of this because I'm still trying to make sense of this. Like, okay, like, like, what is the purpose behind this? Why am I in this situation? Not why. I like. I understand that because you know of what I did. I put myself and left myself open to a situation that a person could betray me how they want to. I understand that, and I also understand that. You know, I don't look at the, the police officers that was involved in my case and say, okay, these are wicked, corrupt people. I don't know these people, but I do know that they've done things that were illegal. I do know that from what I've seen that they definitely gloried in the fact that they were, that, that, that they're known as, okay, we're the guys that caught Michael Jordan and daddy's killers. And they've profited from that in a lot of different ways. And, and even one of the, the officers are bound to point the same thing out. But at the same time, I'm, I, what I can't, like, to me, I really believe in that there's a purpose 
behind our lives, that there's a purpose, there's something to be accomplished. And sometimes we have to craft the purpose out of our life. So when it comes to Larry, like, there are times in my life when, you know, when I'm meditating like I, you know, want to, and I'm praying like I want to, and I'm doing yoga like I want to, and and I'm in a good state spiritually. And in those times, you know, I can be very, you know, I, I feel like, man, yeah, I, you know, I've forgiven him, and it doesn't make a difference, even if he never tells the truth, you know, um, for the sake of my own spiritual evolution, for the sake of me being the, the type of person that I want to be, that I want to see in this world, you know, I, I've forgiven him. But then there are times when something goes on with my family, and I'm not there for my family. Or the prosecutor is saying, yeah, Larry Demery testified truthfully, and he's the key to the whole case, which is what Johnson Britt said, that Larry was the key to the whole case, or, you know, different things. And then I feel very, you know, angry, and I feel like you would feel if somebody that was supposed to be a friend of yours basically helped somebody take you hostage. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. At this point, 44-year-old Daniel Green has spent more than half his life in prison. Two years for an assault that was later determined to be self-defense, and 23 years for the murder of James Jordan, which he says he had no part in. I went to prison when I was 16 years old, um, and I got out when I was 18 years old. And so the whole time that I was in prison, somebody's trying to say, well, this is, this is who you are. You are, this, you are this bad person that goes around, you know, assaulting people and trying to hurt people. I'm not a, you know, I, I like box, right, so I can fight. And, but the thing about boxing as a sport is that it teaches you respect and, you know, in the way that you fight. So I don't fight people. Like, I don't, I'm not going to hurt you and then keep hurting you. I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to defend myself. I'm not going to kick you while you're down. You know, I'm not going to hit you from behind. I'm not going to hit you, you know, below the belt. Certain things I'm not going to do. By nature, I used to be a very trusting person uh, to, to, the, to the point of being stupid. And that comes from really, I'm going to be honest with you, that comes from, from living in the country where everybody within a, like within a couple of miles is your family, right? Mm-hmm. And nobody means you any harm, period. And then I lived in southwest Philadelphia. And the thing about southwest Philadelphia is that where I lived, I lived like across the street from a park. And the area that I lived in was like a very beautiful community. You know, um, I mean, it's all different races. It's, it's a lot of trust. So by nature, you know what I'm saying, by, in my environment, the way I grew up, I was extremely trusting to the point of being naive. Because I went home with, with like, when I was a kid, I would walk through, you know, say, walk through the city, and I might meet somebody, and they'd get off the bus and say, listen, can you help me carry this? And I'd help me carry it inside the house. The person could have killed me, and it never crossed my mind that something like that could happen. Daniel's point in telling us his history is that he trusted people like his friend, Larry Demery, like the police, who he told the story to, like the prosecution, who he trusted to do the right thing, and his attorneys, several of whom let him down. 
This morning, I, I was up about 4 o'clock and was fortunate enough to see C-SPAN, which really happens here, right? And uh, Kamala Harris, I think, came on. You know, she's running for president, and she was, thought, and she was speaking about speaking truth and how, you know, people speak the truth, and it makes people uncomfortable. So I'm, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't, I'm not the type, I don't want to tell a lot even if it's going to benefit me. And what Daniel Green wants you to know about him is this. I want people to understand that, yeah, when you have somebody that's locked up, that's wrongfully convicted, I want you to know that, yeah, that's a, that is a, a form of torture that a person you could never comprehend because not only are you being having to go through this torture of being locked up for something that you didn't do, people are sitting there telling you and treating you as such what you know to be true, what is reality is not true. So you exist in it like psychologically, it's like you're constantly in conflict with your environment and people are sitting there looking at you and telling you, yeah, but you did this, or you did that. Naturally, I feel this, I'm going to be the same type of person that you would be. But what I can say is that, you know, to the degree that I, that I am able to remain positive, it's because I've met people since I've been in here. People have reached out to me and, I mean, just, you know, I've met beautiful, amazing people in here that have been my lifeline. Like that if it wasn't for them and for the transformative work that they do, you know, with me and on me, that's what keeps me alive and that's what keeps me hopeful and uh, that's what keeps me positive, you know. Uh, having, you know, the people in my life, my family, that still choose to love me when it could be a lot easier for them to walk away. So listen, and, uh, and so I have a lot time is up. Uh, thank you, though. I, I appreciate talking to you. Daniel, it was great to talk to you and I really appreciate your time today and best of luck. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, bye-bye. Next week, on The Score Behind the Headlines, we'll wrap up our investigation into the death of James Jordan in our final episode of Season 1. The Score Behind the Headlines is written and researched by me, Julie DeCaro, and our executive producer is Tony Gill. New episodes are posted Monday of each week at Radio.com and wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Julie DeCaro, at TonyGill670, and at 670thescore. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.